All right, let's dig into a study of God's Word this morning. I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Philemon. Philemon. As you know, we're in a continuing verse-by-verse study of Philemon. And the title of this morning's message is part one of a number of messages that we're going to bring called True Forgiveness. True Forgiveness. We're going to be studying as we go along here Philemon verses 8 to 25. Philemon 8 to 25. I've been telling you that the underlying theme of the book of Philemon is this matter of true forgiveness. And although I've mentioned that a number of times, interestingly enough, Philemon, the letter itself, does not ever mention the word forgiveness. Isn't that interesting? But it is nonetheless true that forgiveness is the theme of the book. True forgiveness is what we understand and what we must understand in order to live healthy Christian lives. True forgiveness, and I've said this before, but it bears repeating, true forgiveness may well be the most important truth that any Christian ever comes to know and experience. Let me say it again. True forgiveness may very well be the most important truth any Christian must need to know and experience. I was reading again this week in John Stott's book, Confess Your Sins, because I remember he had a very shocking statement in this book about the matter of forgiveness. He said, Let us agree with modern writers on this subject that deliverance from the bondage of guilt and a certainty of divine absolution were never more needed than they are in the 20th century. In other words, he's saying that true forgiveness, knowing that you're truly forgiven, is nowhere and now no more needed than in the 20th century. He says, Jack Winslow quotes the head of a large English mental hospital as having said, quote, I could dismiss half my patients tomorrow if they could be assured of forgiveness. Isn't that amazing? So many of the mental homes and hospitals and insane asylums are probably largely as a result of people who are living under the burden and the guilt of sin, having never been forgiven. He goes on to say, It has been authoritatively claimed, as George MacLeod writes, that some 60% of patients in Scottish mental hospitals are suffering in some degree from a guilt complex. And he describes general practitioners who are delayed in their work by the number of quite normal patients with an overflowing need to unburden their souls. Sixty percent, he says. Six out of ten, in his experience, who if they knew forgiveness, if they knew their guilt was assuaged by God's forgiving love, they could be unburdening their souls, getting right down to the heart of the matter. He says, we live in a world where literally thousands of our church members are are in need of release. We live in a vacuum where men simply are not freed. Men are crying out for forgiveness. I was heartened recently to 
read John MacArthur's latest book, The Freedom and Power of Forgiveness. He says wisely, Our society is drunk on the grapes of human wrath, road rage, disgruntled employee rampages, drive-by shootings, and other crimes of vengeance are the hallmarks of this generation. No wonder so many people are racked with guilt, anger, depression, and other destructive emotions. Early in my pastoral ministry, I noticed an interesting fact. Nearly all the personal problems that drive people to seek pastoral counsel are related in some way to the issue of forgiveness. The typical typical counselee's most troublesome problems would be significantly diminished and in some cases solved completely by a right understanding of what Scripture says about forgiveness. He goes on to say, Almost no concept is more important to the Christian faith than forgiveness. The gospel itself is a message about God's forgiveness, and Christ's teaching was full of exhortations to His people to be forgiving to one another. He set an incredibly high standard, teaching us to forgive even the most stubborn offenders. Without God's forgiveness, we would have no hope whatsoever. And when we learn to forgive others, a host of life's difficulties suddenly are settled. Forgiveness, we discover, is the starting point for resolving life's most troubling problems. He's right. This matter of forgiveness is that important. I don't know if you were reading your newspaper last week, but I read a very shocking account under the title, Pastor Gunned Down in Church Following Bible Class. Did you read that? Trotwood, Ohio, September 18th. Tears welled up in the eyes of Richard Island as he recalled finding his pastor shot and dying on the floor of his church following a Bible study class. He was lying on the floor in front of the first pew. His wife was with him, Island said Thursday. He was gasping for air. He said the Reverend Andrew Lofton, 65, had wounds in his back and chest. Police arrested a member of the choir, Kenneth Nance, 58, who had sat quietly during Wednesday night's scripture lesson at Christ Temple Apostolic Faith Church in suburban Dayton. After the class, as four or five people were talking to the pastor, Nance pulled out a thirty-two caliber handgun and shot Lofton several times, said police captain Jim Borland. No one else was injured. The minister was taken to Good Samaritan Hospital and Health Center where he died. Investigators had not determined the motive for the shooting. Borland said Nance turned himself in to police, telling them he had shot a man. Nance was booked on suspicion of murder pending formal charges. Associate Minister Alfonso Forward Sr. said Lofton, father of 11 grown children, was a gentle man whose life revolved around the church, a tan brick building with a white steeple at the end of a cul-de-sac in a residential neighborhood. He was a man who cared for his people, Forward said. He was concerned about their salvation and concerned about the way things were going in this world and tried to make people ready. I read that and I thought to myself, how shocking. Pastor doing the Lord's service, teaching a Wednesday night class as he probably had done so many years before. Some man, probably because he was racked with sin and guilt and the lack of forgiveness of that sin, pulls out a gun and shoots his pastor. You know, that's what our life is like outside of Christ. It may not be to that extreme, 
But internally, people who have not been forgiven of their sins have guilt and anger and bitterness and resentment and wrath so much of the time. So many people are good at hiding it. But so many are racked with the impact of their own sin and bitterness. But you see, true forgiveness relieves that anger and that bitterness that men keep inside. To know and experience God's forgiving love is to release that anger and that wrath and that bitterness. And to know and experience God's forgiveness is to begin to learn how to forgive others. You do realize that as a believer, once you've been experiencing the forgiveness of God, both at salvation and throughout your Christian life, you can forgive anyone of anything. It's what God does inside one whom He forgives. Someone described that kind of forgiveness this way. To forgive is to turn the key, open the cell door, and let the prisoner walk free. To forgive is to write in large letters across a debt, nothing owed. To forgive is to pound the gavel in a courtroom and declare not guilty. To forgive is to shoot an arrow so high and so far that it can never be found again. To forgive is to bundle up all the garbage and trash and dispose of it, leaving the house clean and fresh. To forgive is to loose the moorings of a ship and release it to the open sea. To forgive is to grant full pardon to a condemned criminal. To forgive is to relax a stranglehold on a wrestling opponent. To forgive is to sandblast a wall of graffiti, leaving it looking like new. To forgive is to smash a clay pot into a thousand pieces so that it can never be pieced together again. That's forgiveness. And that is precisely the underlying thought that Paul now gives to his friend Philemon. Look at verses 8 to 10 with me. We could call this the appeal to forgive. The appeal to forgive. Paul says, Therefore, though I have confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. As you know from our last two studies, Philemon is the slave master of a runaway slave named Onesimus. And in God's wonderful providence, according to verse 19 of this little letter, Paul has led Philemon to Christ some years prior to this. We don't know how long. We assume it may have been some time back. And in God's wonderful grace and mercy, this runaway slave Onesimus has found his way probably to Rome. He wanted to make sure that he was not found, but in God's pounding of his grace and mercy toward those whom he will, he brought Onesimus into the life of Paul himself. According to verse 10, Paul leads Onesimus to Christ. And after probably some years of the discipling process, he tells Onesimus, now it's time to go home. You must go back to Philemon, your master in the flesh and in the Lord, and you must seek his forgiveness. 
And so Onesimus goes, and as he goes with Tychicus, another associate of Paul, Paul hands Tychicus a letter. And he says, not only do I want Onesimus to go back and seek Philemon's forgiveness, but I also want this letter to go back through you, Tychicus, to Philemon himself, and this is that letter. Paul has been saying about his friend Philemon, because of the reports that he's been hearing about his faith, that Philemon is a man of love, according to verse 5. He's a man of great faith. He has a wonderful knowledge of what God expects all believers to do for Christ's sake, according to verse 6. He has given much joy and much comfort, not only to Paul, but to everyone around him because of his love, because of his heart. Paul says, I've been so refreshed through you, brother. And sort of under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's buttering Philemon up. Because in a few short verses, even though Philemon is probably totally unaware of it, he's going to mention a name that might strike a chord in Philemon's heart. Can you imagine that this may well be the first time that Philemon has heard this name in a long time, Onesimus? When Paul gives him that name, he wants not a reaction of vengeance, not a reaction of wrath, not a reaction of bitterness in the heart of this slave owner, but he wants instead love, forgiveness. And so he says in verse 8, Therefore, as a result of how I've just encouraged you about your life, Philemon, and though I have enough confidence or boldness or frankness in Christ to order you to do what is proper, that is, forgive. Rather, yet for love's sake, verse 9, I rather appeal to you. He says, you know, Philemon, I am one of the apostles. Paul never flouted his apostleship. He never banked on his apostleship, although he could so many times. He had to defend it to the Corinthians so often. And though he could demand, challenge, command Philemon to forgive, he says, rather, I appeal to you. Can you imagine that if Paul needed to, if it was absolutely necessary, he could say to Philemon something like this, Philemon, do you realize, not pridefully, not arrogantly so, but do you realize the fact of the matter? I was once caught up in the third heaven of all the heavens into the very presence of Jesus Christ himself. I don't even want to talk about it. It's so holy, it's so sacred a moment that Jesus Christ gave me a revelation of Himself. He told me which gospel to preach. He told me about all of the things concerning Himself. What a discipleship, Philemon. He gave me this apostleship, and He's told me what to do in order to direct and instruct the churches. And now, because of that great revelation, because of my apostleship, I command you, to forgive Onesimus, this runaway slave. I commend you to do it in the name of Christ, as though I had the very confidence that Christ Himself were commanding it right now through me. Paul doesn't do that, though, does he? He says, I could do that. I could order you to do what is proper, but I won't. I'll appeal to you. I'll entreat you. I'll beg of you. Here's what I want you to do. Love Him. Forgive him. Grant him the same kind of grace that you've been granted. I could speak boldly, but I, I don't want to do so. 
According to verse 9, he says, Yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you. Look, he says, if you're known as a man in verse 5 that loves other people, if you, by so many Christians' testimony, according to verse 7, have experienced this joy and comfort in your love, then love Onesimus in the same way. Forgive them as you would so many others that you've forgiven. Peter O'Brien, the great commentator, says, It is precisely because Paul knows of Philemon's kindness and generosity in the past that he is able to entreat rather than command. And he looks forward to Philemon's love being shown once again, this time with reference to Onesimus. I'm asking you to do it one more time. And I'm asking you to do it with a man who maybe for many years has wronged you. But Philemon, he's come to faith in Christ. And now I'm sending him to you to seek your forgiveness. And if that weren't enough, Paul says, do it for me because I'm such a one as Paul, the aged, the presbytes, the elder. Or probably in this context, I'm Paul, the old man. Now we don't often like to be referred to as an old man or as an old woman, but Paul uses it appealingly here. I'm getting old, Philemon. I've gone through the wars and the battles and the heartache and the whippings and the beatings and the imprisonments and the criticisms and the persecutions and the near-death, if not death, experiences. And I'm appealing to you. I'm the aged one. I'm the ambassador for Christ. I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I'm writing from this, this stink hole of a prison in Rome. And I'm telling you that no greater act could be given to this runaway slave Onesimus than your forgiveness of him. I want you to do it. I could order you to do it, but I don't. I love you and I want you to love him. He says in verse 10, for a second time, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. I led you to Christ. I led him to Christ. So I appeal to you to forgive. Now, this is so fascinating to me. As I was reading through this and meditating on this book, and you know, when you study the Bible, you read, or you should read, especially a little letter like this. You could read it in one sitting 50, 60, 80 times. And as you read it and read it and mull over it and meditate on it and try to find out all of the nuances and try to put yourself right into the head of Philemon or to put yourself right into the mind of Paul, I ask myself this question. You know, if forgiveness really is the underlying theme here, why doesn't he mention the word? I mean, if forgiveness is the real deal here, why doesn't he say... Philemon, here's exactly, precisely what I want you to do, and I'm going to use the right word. And the Greek word for forgiveness is aphiomi. I want you to aphiomi, forgive Philemon. Why doesn't he list it? And I pondered that and thought about that, and I really believe that the right answer is, think of the context, think of the, the history of the time. The church at Colossae was made up of Jews and Gentiles. Jews who had forsaken their Judaism and had placed their faith in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Gentiles who had left all of their religious or secular philosophies about life 
and who had joined Christianity. And now they were together in one church situation in a home, in fact, in Philemon's home. And so many of them would have been ostracized from their families. Anybody who was a true Jew who would have owned Jesus Christ as the one who forgives sins would have no doubt been branded a heretic. No doubt a person who would have been slashed in his way, slashed in his opportunity to be a witness to his family. Many of them may have even said, away with you, you are not a part of our family anymore. And the only family that they have is the church. And these Gentiles who would have forsaken all of these other various philosophies of life, they would have said, this is my, this is my only true family now. James said that all of these believers had been scattered abroad. Some of them probably didn't know anything else other than all of the people who were directly around them. For where sin obviously continued to occur, but forgiveness was the staple diet of the day. You know what? The reason why Paul, I'm sure, does not even mention the word forgiveness is because he didn't need to. It's so apparent It's so obvious that in the culture of that time, they knew exactly what forgiveness was all about. They knew the terms, they knew the context, they knew the reasons, they knew the rationale, they knew the steps, they were involved in the process constantly, continually. They knew exactly what they needed to do to seek forgiveness, to grant forgiveness. They were a church family, probably like something we might not very well relate to. Sad to say. Paul probably didn't even need to mention the word because they knew exactly what forgiveness was all about. And that, my friends, is the tragedy of our day. We in the church, and especially now that we hear forgiveness talked a lot about in the secular media, it's bantered about the words repentance, the words forgiveness, the word confession, the words contrition, brokenness. All of these words are tossed to and fro, but we little recognize and understand what they really mean. It wasn't like this day. It wasn't like this time with Philemon. People give these words back and forth with little to no understanding. And you know, that's really why we need to define our terms. Because if we're really going to understand the underlying theme of forgiveness in our local church, like they were attempting to understand in their local church, we need to understand what forgiveness is. You remember when I introduced this little book, I said that there were a number of questions we needed to ask and answer regarding forgiveness. Well, we've arrived at that time. We need a very, very critical, defining understanding of what forgiveness is all about. And one of the questions that I ask you when we introduced this book was, what is forgiveness? How can you define forgiveness? What does it really mean according to the Bible? Well, let me give that to you this morning. This is the answer to that first question, what is forgiveness? I want to define it in two ways. First, I want to define what we might be able to call vertical forgiveness. Vertical forgiveness. That is, the forgiveness that I desperately need in my relationship to God. My vertical relationship to Him. And then I want to define horizontal forgiveness. That forgiveness that we have between ourselves as believers in Christ. First, vertical forgiveness. Here's a very succinct definition. Forgiveness means that on the basis of the death of Christ, on the basis of the death of Christ, His atoning sacrifice, God does not count my sins against me. That's a very simple definition of forgiveness. 
God does not count my sins against me. He forgives all of my sins, past, present, and future, based upon the death of Christ. In other words, He, God, refuses to bring up my sins against me at the bar of His divine justice. God says to you and me, if we're Christians, that on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ, on the ground of Christ's cross, I will not hold your sins against you. Let me give you a couple of verses that define this. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25. We don't have time to turn there. I'll read it for you. Isaiah 43, 25. It says, God speaking, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Isn't that one of the greatest verses in all of the world? I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Or like Jeremiah 31.34. Jeremiah 31.34. I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Now in those two passages, there's a very interesting and thought-provoking phrase. I will remember their sins no more. What does that mean? Does that mean that God cannot remember something? He can't remember, remember people's sins? No. If that were true, then it would flatly contradict the other portions of Scripture which affirm that God is omniscient, that He knows everything. The issue when it says, I will remember your sins no more, is that God is not going to use our sins against us ever again. That's why Romans 8.1 says, There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ, God has obligated Himself, promised Himself by His own oath-taking, that He will never bring up our sins against us ever again. Does that deserve a hallelujah? God will never, ever remember our sins in the sense that He's going to use them against us ever again. And the graphic language from Jeremiah and from Isaiah, as they quote God Himself, I will remember them no more. It's a settled issue. You and your sins have been put as far away from you as the what? The east is from the west. And how far is the east from the west? Infinitely far. Infinitely so. And it, it's on the basis or the ground of the death of Jesus Christ. There is no one ever who will be a resident of heaven who is there because of anything other than the cross of Christ. Acts 4.12, There is now therefore no other name given among men whereby we must be saved than in the name of Jesus. Jesus is the only way that we can be forgiven of our sins. That's the ground. That's the basis. And when God says Christ and His life for your life and its unholiness, He says that sin in your life, your life of sins has been forgiven. A theomene, released. The dead is gone. It's let go. It's sent away. Your sins are left alone from you. You're free. And that's why in 1 John 1.9 it says that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all 
unrighteousness. That's the ground. Now, now, not only do we have the ground of that vertical forgiveness, but there are also some conditions. You might not have normally thought of this, but there are conditions for forgiveness. You say, well, wait a minute. I thought you just said that the condition is the cross of Christ. No, I didn't say that the conditions were the cross of Christ. That's the ground or the basis. But there are conditions for my being forgiven by God at salvation. And what conditions are those? Faith and repentance. Faith and repentance. The object of my faith is Jesus Christ. He is the one who relieves me of that blood guiltiness. He's the one who relieves me of that sinful condition. He's the one that grants me salvation. I believe in Christ and what He did on the cross. And I repent. I change my mind about my sin, about who I am, about who Christ is, and I turn from my sin to serve the living God. So my faith and my repentance are the condition for which I am forgiven. Or you, if you want to say, are the instruments that God uses, the means whereby God forgives me. Faith and repentance. No one will ever be in heaven not only because of the cross of Christ, but no one will be in heaven who has not already placed their faith in Christ and repented of their sins. That is the condition that God gives us for vertical forgiveness. Now, you as evangelical believers would say, you've not told me anything that I don't affirm. I believe that. I agree with that. What's the big deal about forgiveness? Well, in vertical forgiveness, there really isn't such a mystery People aren't really not understanding those things as they should. It's when we get into the area of horizontal forgiveness that's a much different issue. Now, you as evangelical believers would say, you've not told me anything that I don't affirm. I believe that. I agree with that. What's the big deal about forgiveness? Well, in vertical forgiveness, there really isn't such a mystery. People aren't really not understanding those things as they should. It's when we get into the area of horizontal forgiveness that's a much different issue. And here is the definition of horizontal forgiveness. Horizontal forgiveness means that, again, on the basis of the death of Christ, I make a promise. I obligate myself. I'm promising that if, on the condition that someone comes to me and repents of that sin and seeks my forgiveness, on the condition of their repentance, I promise, I obligate myself to forgive them, to release them of that debt, to say, you are forgiven. I will not bring up their sins against them evermore. Now, that may not be as understood as vertical forgiveness, but it is nonetheless true. Horizontal forgiveness says that I will not bring up someone's sins against me ever again. Once they seek my forgiveness, and once I grant them that forgiveness, it will never, ever be brought up again, unless I bring it up and sin by doing so. And often that may happen in a marriage relationship or in some other relationship in the church. Someone will bring up those sins of the past, whether it's five minutes in the past or five months in the past or five years in the past. And that in and of itself is a sin because I promise by the very nature of forgiveness itself, never to bring those things up against you again as a grudge, as a, an act of bitterness on my part, or anger against you, or because I think this is a pattern in your life. And so I begin to recite all of the times that you've sinned against me, even though the transaction of forgiveness has occurred. You sought it, I granted it. Forgiveness says no. You come to me and you seek my forgiveness, you repent of that, 
and you say, please forgive me, I'm obligated to do so. That's what forgiveness is all about. You say, where is that taught in the Bible? Mark 11.25. Mark 11.25. This is a very, very important passage in this regard. Mark 11.25 speaks of what I must do in two ways. First, Jesus said, Mark 11.25, Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgression. The first thing that's occurring there is prayer, right? Whenever you stand praying. That's probably not the best way for it to be translated. Literally, it should be this. As you stand ready in prayer, comma, forgive. As you are standing ready in your prayer life to forgive someone, that's the first part. The second part is the transaction, forgive. As you are standing ready to forgive anyone who sins against you, as you are preparing your heart for the forgiveness transaction, as you are readying yourself to receive anyone who comes, as you're standing ready, when they actually do it, forgive. Forgive. That's what Jesus is saying. He's probably even alluding to Psalm 86.5, which says, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive. The picture is, God is standing ever ready to forgive. Isn't that a beautiful picture of our Lord? He's standing ever ready to forgive. And when the condition of repentance has come to Him, what does He do? He reaches out with His forgiving love and forgives immediately. The moment someone comes in repentance and faith, God, standing always ready to forgive, wraps His forgiving love around that person and says, you, in fact, are forgiven. The transaction is complete. The conditions have been met. The ground or the basis of that forgiveness has been met by the cross of Christ. Yes, I do forgive you. That's why Paul says what he says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31 and 32. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Why? Because you as Christians now are to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. You say, yeah, but it doesn't say anything right there about this transaction of forgiveness, this conditional forgiveness. Well, remember this, not every single passage on forgiveness teaches us everything about forgiveness. This is talking about what I need to do in my heart so that when I'm ready to forgive, when I'm standing ready to forgive, I have no bitterness, anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech in my mouth. I'm just ready at a moment's notice so that when any believer who sins against me comes, I just envelop them with love and grace and forgiveness. I'm tender-hearted. I'm forgiving of them because Christ has forgiven me all the debt I owed to Him. Same thing of Colossians 3. 12 and 13, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. You see, you're readying your heart. You're saying, here's what I need to do to put off the anger and the wrath and the malice and the bitterness that may be there if someone sins against me and I say, ouch, that hurts. That's wrong. You shouldn't have done that. And I must guard my heart so that that wrath and that malice and that bitterness and that anger does not spring up or well up in me like a root of bitterness. He says that's what you should put off and here's what you should put on. 
compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And that's really the echo of Jesus Himself. Forgive those debts of others as you have been forgiven of your debts. Now, someone might still say, listen, you've had no argument from me so far. I understand vertical forgiveness. I understand horizontal forgiveness. I need to know that I I can't, I must not have any bitterness in my heart against anyone. I must stand ready to forgive. But what if that person doesn't come? I'm just standing ready to forgive. I have a heart of forgiveness toward that person who sinned against me. But what if someone who has in fact sinned against me doesn't come and seek my forgiveness? See, there's where it gets a little tricky because someone might say, well, what do I do at that point? Should I just forgive them from my heart? Even though they've sinned against me, should I just say, well, that's all right. The Lord's forgiven me. The Lord's forgiven you. You're a professing believer in Christ. And even though you aren't coming, maybe they're short-sighted. Maybe they're blinded about this area. Maybe they're very sinful about this area. Maybe they're very rebellious. Or maybe it's even a person who's a terror among the wheat in the church. They've never really been forgiven, and so they don't come and seek other people's forgiveness. And they don't come to you. Do you just say, well, I just forgive you in my heart? What if someone refuses to come? Can I simply forgive them without a confrontation? And the answer is, what does the Scripture say? Well, Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 and 24. Matthew 5, 23, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. What does it say? Leave your offering, verse 24, there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. In other words, if you know that someone has something against you, the Bible says you must go. There's nothing about just sort of, quote-unquote, forgiving someone in my heart and leaving those things to them. The Bible knows nothing about that. If there is something for which you know there is a breach in the relationship, if your conscience is smitten, then you go and say, I believe I may have sinned against you. If your conscience is smitten that someone has sinned against you and you know you need to go and admonish them, confront them, lovingly come alongside them and say, I believe you may have done this, you may have said this, or I believe you have done this, or you have said this, the Bible says go. I believe that you may have something against me. In Luke 17, Jesus said that if anyone comes to you, verse 3, Luke 17, 3, and they say, they say, I repent. What does Jesus say we must do? Forgive. Forgive. And how many times must we do so? Seventy times seven. In other words, as many times as they come, even if they only say, I repent. The question is, is their repentance genuine? And that is something for which God and, say, for instance, the leadership of a local church is there to determine. Someone has a pattern in their life for which they need to be admonished by you or by the leadership of a church. They'll deal with those things. If they say they repent and they come to you to seek that forgiveness, the Bible says you must forgive them. But if they don't come, you go to them. And hopefully you'll both meet halfway in between. Why? Because... Forgiveness always implies reconciliation. Always. 
There is no such thing as granting someone forgiveness and then not being reconciled with them. Now, there may be at times where you forgive someone, they've asked you, and they depart from the relationship, and you've done everything you can, and they're the ones who are not reconciling with you, and there's nothing you could do. Well, that's why the Bible says in Romans 12, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. You try to do everything you can to be a forgiving person, a person with a heart of love and compassion, and you do everything that you know you need to do to go to someone, to be compassionate, to confront them in love, and hopefully they will say, yes, thank you for coming. You've challenged me. Yes, I see my sin now. Will you please forgive me of this? I'm so glad that you've come. And that happens so often. That's why Galatians 6 says that if a person is caught in a trespass or a fault or a sin, you who are spiritual, that means you who are in the church, who are of the spiritual ones, that's every Christian, you go and you restore such a one. See, it's always a going, always a going, always a preparation for my heart to be a heart of love and compassion. Now, but you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. You mean to tell me, like say in a husband-wife relationship or a brother-sister relationship, whether in the flesh or spiritually, that every single time there's a sin, I have to talk to that person about it or they have to talk to me about it? Every single time? You mean to tell me that in a marriage relationship, for instance, with all of the veritable sins that will occur, all of the missteps and the faults and the failures and the rebellion, all of that must be talked through. If that were so, all we would be doing is that. We couldn't even go to the grocery store together. What, what would we be doing with our time if all of that was there? Well, in order to answer that question, you need to come back next time. Because we've run out of time. That's a very, very important question. For instance, someone says, but doesn't it say, Pastor, in 1 Peter 4, 8, that love covers a multitude of sins? Doesn't it say, Pastor, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that love bears all things? How do you reconcile those very clear verses with the idea of standing ready to forgive, but the person doesn't come? I thought that maybe there was a category of some sins for which love covers, and then there's a category of other sins for which, yes, I agree with you, we must go. Which category is which? What's the right process? When do you know versus when do you do not go? What do you do? Well, we'll talk about those things next time. But the issue for us is to know unmistakably that as you've been forgiven by Jesus Christ, you must forgive. You must stand ready to forgive. You know, it is absolutely unenviable, first of all, and for me, completely non-understandable that anyone would refuse to forgive another person. Think of the debt that we have been forgiven. Remember the story in Matthew 18 when it says that the king had a subject brought to him who owed what was equivalent in our day to probably like $10 million and said to that king, that master, I, I, I don't have the money, I'll, I'll try to repay you, I'll try to do whatever I can, uh, please please forgive me, I'm sorry, I know I owe this, it's a debt I know I owe, and what does the king do? Forgive him. It's like that smashing of that clay pot into a million pieces. 
never ever to be reconstructed again. Imagine the joy of that person's heart. And then what does he do? He goes right out from that incident. It says at that very moment. He goes out into the street and he finds a guy who owes him ten bucks. He says, hey, where's that money you owe me? And the guy says, oh, I'm sorry. I, I want to do what's right. I, I know I owe you this cash and I'll do my best to pay you as soon as I can. Please have mercy on me. And what does he do? Does he have the opportunity now, the platform to say, debt released, forgiveness granted? No, it says he took his hands and put it around the guy's neck. Probably turned him upside down, you know, like they do in the, the cartoons, you know, to try to shake all the money and the coinage out of his pockets. And what happens? Someone hears about it and they go back and they tell the master. He brings it back in there and he says, now wait a minute. What's wrong with this picture? Did I not just forgive you of an unpayable debt and now you're trying to wring $10 out of this guy? You know, that is so different, isn't it, from the prodigal son and the loving father? I'll tell you what was happening there. The, the, the father had the light on in the window. And for years, even though he knew the prodigal was out living like the devil, as they say, the loving father had that light on in the window day and night, day and night, day and night. He was standing ready to forgive. He had nothing in his heart but love and affirmation and forgiveness and compassion and kindness and humility. But he couldn't forgive him. He wasn't forgiving him because he had not yet walked back onto the road of repentance. He didn't just say, by the way, son, I want you to know as you're walking away to live a profligate life, a very sinful life, squandering your inheritance, that you're forgiven. No. He waited, waited, checking his own heart, checking his own motives, looking at his life, knowing all of the wonderful things that might happen one day if he, that son, repented. And did he repent? Oh, yes. And when he repented, and when he was walking down that road, and when the father saw him, and when he knew that was the road of repentance, he had the robe and the ring and the feast. And he said, I've been standing ready to forgive you, son. And I want to give you everything that you don't deserve. You see, that's forgiveness. That's what it means to forgive because we've been forgiven. And all of the processes and the steps for what happens when this occurs or this doesn't occur, we'll talk about those next time because they are important. But the main importance is, I've been forgiven, I forgive. If you get, do you forgive people? You love to forgive because it shows off the forgiving God who loves you and should. It's what it means to be a Christian. Let's pray together. Loving Lord, do we not have the perfect opportunity to seek to be a forgiving person? You've forgiven us so much. Nothing inherent within us, nothing we could have done. You crashed in and through our sinful lives our unforgiven bitterness and anger. And you loved us with the cross. And now you call us to forgive. 
How could we do any less? When someone comes to me and says, please forgive me, I say, I've seen you walking down that road of repentance and I've readied my heart and I have nothing in my soul but love and compassion and kindness toward you. Of course you're forgiven. It's axiomatic. Oh Lord, give us that kind of life that shows how forgiving you are toward us. Thank you for all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.